Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, I've got something a little different for you. In the past, Thomas and I have done, quote, solo episodes where it's just he and I talking about a, a subject, but this episode is, is just going to be me talking about the Bitcoin blockchain, how it works, getting into some of the mechanics of it, and talking a little bit at a high level about some of its implications and why people are so excited about it. This is based on a talk I gave at Elementus, which is the company I, I work at. Elementus is a New York-based company that is building a universal search engine for the blockchain. And it's a relatively small company, but there's a pretty even divide between people who have spent a lot of time looking at blockchain data and thinking about how the blockchain works and people who have not done that. So some of the salespeople, some of the C-suite level folks, have been in the crypto space or have paid some attention to it, but they don't know a lot about how a transaction is put together or how a block is mined or what those terms actually mean. And so I thought it might help to get everybody on, on an even footing um, by discussing all of those things. And it was really well received. Even some of the people who spent a lot of time in the blockchain space found some of my examples and my explanations very clarifying. And so I wanted to make a podcast episode out of it. And uh, the result is what you're listening to right now. So in the original talk, there were slides. I think that 99% of the content should transfer over just fine without you uh, needing to see those slides. So they definitely help, but I don't think they're required for comprehension. And so in in some of the, the bits of conversation or explanation, I might allude to something on a slide or allude to something on the screen. Just know that none of that is required uh, for you to understand the subject. It just, it kind of helps me or, or it helped during the course of the talk. And I should also note that I am focused entirely on the Bitcoin blockchain. Since Bitcoin is the original blockchain and the one that most people think of when they hear the term, the blockchain, I think that is a sensible place to begin. And it makes, uh, it, it's definitely a good strategy to focus on that first. You should just know that different blockchains do things differently. But I think that if you, understand everything that's said in this podcast, and you come away with that uh, as sort of your guiding metaphor in your explorations, then it really should give you a leg up over starting from scratch. And so I hope that you get a lot out of this. I certainly did. And with that having been said, let's go ahead and get started. So I am embarrassed to say that despite having been at two different crypto asset startups and having interviewed quite a number of luminaries in the space through this podcast, it wasn't until I sat down to do research for this talk that the internals of how a transaction is put together or how a block is mined became clear to me. Prior to this, I was operating on a much more limited understanding. So there are six major sections we're going to cover. The first is a very high level view of the blockchain. And specifically, we're going to briefly look at what makes it innovative, what makes it exciting, why people care about it. Now, this isn't really all that relevant to the technical sections that follow, but I think it's good context to have. Knowing why people are drawn to a technology lets you understand how they're likely to use it, what problems they'll run into, 
etc. After that, we'll turn our attention to somewhat more technical matters. Sections two, three, and four are on what transactions are and how they work, how blocks are formed, and how blocks are mined, respectively. Throughout these sections, we discuss blockchain security, and the penultimate section just gathers those threads together into one place. And then finally, we zoom back out again and look at some of the ways in which people are using the blockchain currently. So let's begin with a definition, and this is cobbled together from a few different sources. The blockchain is a decentralized, open source, peer-to-peer -peer network, implementing a data structure called the distributed ledger, in which trust is established by the whole network via special consensus rules. Now that's a generic blockchain. The Bitcoin blockchain is this exact same thing. It just has a native currency built into it called Bitcoin. Bitcoin incentivizes miners to secure the network. They offer their computers to the task of proving the validity of transactions in a process called mining. And in exchange, they receive Bitcoin. Decentralized is a fairly intuitive term. It just means that there is no trusted third party that is standing in the middle of everything, reconciling the books and making sure that no fraud is taking place, which is how the current centralized financial system works. And actually many of our institutions are set up this way. They're set up to have some small number of agents, which are the arbiters of truth into which everyone else has to defer. Open source just means that the code is published freely on the internet where anyone can read it, fix it, or fork it. Open source as an approach doesn't make sense everywhere, but there are many situations in which it makes sense to have the code base publicly available. One of the advantages is that with enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. And that's an aphorism from a friend and mentor of mine, Eric Raymond, who was one of the architects of the early open source movement, helped to name, name it. One of the reasons that we know the Bitcoin network is secure, though no, by, by no means the only one, is that the code has been out there for over a decade. And people have found bugs, they've fixed bugs, they've poured over it in all sorts of different ways looking for vectors of attack. At this point, a lot of really smart people have studied the code, and if no one has figured out a way to directly hack the system yet, you can be reasonably confident that no one ever will. Not 100% confident, but reasonably confident. And finally, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. Now, one could argue that, net that a network being peer-to-peer -peer is kind of a facet of a being decentralized. I mean, after all, if it's decentralized and there's not a single node everyone's relating to, how else would it be structured? It would have to be peer-to-peer. -peer. That's true as far as it goes, but I think it's worth highlighting the underlying structure of the blockchain network, because that will come to be important later when we talk about how transactions are validated, how blocks are mined, and that sort of thing. So peer-to-peer -peer just means that each node in the blockchain network interacts with a fairly small number of other nodes. It's not connected to every other node. The graph is not fully connected, but each node will talk to a few other nodes. When a node takes part in a transaction, it will broadcast that to whatever peers it's connected to. They will broadcast it to their peers and so on until it has percolated throughout the network. All this happens without ever going through a single arbiter that ensures the transactions are valid. There's no single node which holds that power because all the nodes hold that power. Now, we said that this decentralized open source peer-to-peer -peer network implements a distributed ledger, and there's nothing at all fancy about this. A distributed ledger is exactly what it sounds like. It is a ledger, which is a bookkeeping data structure that could track transactions, interactions, many other things, which is distributed, meaning that everyone has a copy of it. So it's like, a spreadsheet, it's like a spreadsheet that everyone has a copy of, and when the spreadsheet is updated, everyone gets a copy of the update as well. And what we see as we go on, that what looks to be a fairly prosaic technology actually has a lot of transformative potential. 
At a fundamental level, the blockchain just is a distributed ledger. There's a lot of cryptography and assorted cleverness involved, but at the end of the day, it's a particular kind of database. And you can see this because the first thing you do when you stand up a full Bitcoin node is download a copy of every transaction that's ever been recorded on the blockchain. And this ledger cannot be changed. For all intents and purposes, it's immutable. It's not literally impossible to dispute a long settled transaction a thousand blocks back or 5,000 blocks back, but this would involve forking the blockchain and trying to mine a competing one, and that would be stupendously expensive. And so no one ever does. Therefore, we say for all intents and purposes, the record is immutable. This usually occurs after six blocks, which is uh, about one hour. But of course, the further you go back, the deeper the chain is, then the more immutable a transaction is. To a first approximation, the most important property of the blockchain is the mechanism for establish, establishing decentralized trust. The major innovation is getting a network of people who don't know each other, who are communicating over noisy channels which may be compromised, to nevertheless be able to arrive at a consensus about the truth of the record that they all share. Everyone can go to sleep at night knowing their database contains true information without needing to rely on any single entity to make it so. We're not going to dive too deeply into this and talk a whole lot about Bitcoin, uh, is, about how Bitcoin is going to shape the future of humanity. But as we take a look at what transactions are, as we look at how blocks are mined, as we begin to become fam more familiar with these different facets of the technological system, it's worth keeping this in mind. The decentralized consensus mechanism is ultimately what makes Bitcoin special. With all that having been said, let's get right into transactions. So on the blockchain, a transaction consists in signing value of something like Bitcoin over to someone else. It's just sending some money to someone else. This is different from how we normally think of a transaction. In normal parlance, a transaction is two-sided. So I give you something and you give me something in return. On the blockchain, it's only the transfer of value that we actually track. So if I send my friend Nick five Bitcoin, the reason I sent him that is never recorded anywhere. Only the transfer of value is recorded. That's what we mean by a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. It's that transfer of value. I sent Nick five Bitcoin. So right now I'm looking at a real transaction that is just pulled up uh, on a block explorer. And if you're driving around or if you've never heard of a block explorer, don't worry too much about this. It helps for explanatory purposes, but it's not required for you to, to understand it. So on a block explorer, you can just see different transactions between addresses. And if you've never seen a Bitcoin address, it's just a long string of letters and numbers, which is controlled by an entity. So I have Bitcoin addresses and it's just a long string of letters and numbers that I control. A block explorer is a way of looking at any of the transactions that have ever happened on the blockchain. Remember the distributed ledger is a record of all the transactions that have ever occurred. It's a record that everyone has a copy of, it's immutable. And so it stands to reason there'd be some way to explore that record. And block explorers are one way of doing that. You can go through blocks, you can go through addresses, you can go through individual transactions and see what's been occurring on the blockchain going clear back to the very beginning, the very first transaction. And generally, when you're looking at a transaction on the Block Explorer, it's structured like any other layout of a transaction you've seen. There'll be inputs on the left and there'll be outputs on the right. So if we were looking at a, a Block Explorer of me paying Nick for something, it would just be the address I control sending Bitcoin to the address that Nick controls. That's what you would see on the Block Explorer. And that's what I'm looking at right now. A transaction has two parts, the inputs and the outputs, as all transactions do. 
And those, those uh, inputs and outputs have to have certain properties in order to be valid. The outputs have to be less than or equal to the inputs. So there's no way for you to create more Bitcoin just by somehow messing around with the accounting during a transaction. If you try to do something like that, if you try to somehow send more Bitcoin than you have, then, um, or, or if you try to output more Bitcoin than you have rather, or you try to spend Bitcoin that have been spent somewhere else, the blockchain will just flat out reject those. They will not get off the ground at all. Any difference between the inputs and the outputs goes to the miners as an added tip on top of whatever they get for mining the block in the first place. You have to be very careful with this because if you don't remember to send change back to yourself from a transaction, all of that goes to the miner. And you should know if you're getting into Bitcoin for the first time that today wallet software usually handles all of that for you. So that's much less of a problem in 2022 than it was in 2014 when people were using their own wallets and actually making these mistakes. So if you have 20 Bitcoin and you want to buy something for one Bitcoin, but you forget to send the 19 Bitcoin in change back to yourself, that 19 goes as a gigantic tip to whoever ends up mining the block successfully. You have to remember to send the change back to yourself, or in our case, uh, the wallets will handle that for us. The technology has progressed rather a lot and made this a lot uh, more user-friendly and more beginner-friendly. And this actually dovetails into a discussion of the concept of the UTXO, which is not really that complicated, but honestly confused me a little bit when I first encountered it. Transact transaction outputs are called UTXOs. And that stands for unspent transaction output. So if I send Nick five Bitcoin, that Bitcoin now belongs to him. And it is a UTXO because it is the output of a transaction, the transaction in which I sent it to him, which he has not spent yet, hence an unspent transaction output. The Bitcoin blockchain works on the UTXO model, which is distinct from how Ethereum handles transactions. In Ethereum, you have an account-based model and your Ether are essentially placed in the equivalent of a checking or savings account. They all go into one big account and you can shave as much or as little as you want off in a transaction. This is pretty intuitive because it's basically like how you interact with your bank. With Bitcoin, that's not the case. It works on a UTXO model and UTXOs are indivisible. And this is very important. UTXOs are indivisible. So if you have one Bitcoin, you have to spend that Bitcoin all at once. If you have 1.1 Bitcoin, you have to spend 1.1 Bitcoin all at once. And if you have 21.983 Bitcoin, it all has to be spent at once because UTXOs are indivisible. You can't spend part of the UTXO any more than you can spend part of a $1 bill. You can't cut $1 in half and get 50 cents. It's either a dollar or it's not. Now, normally when you have change from a transaction, it comes in these little units. For example, a dollar eighty-three would be one dollar, three quarters, a nickel, and three pennies. The one dollar eighty-three can be broken up if you only want to spend seventy-five cents somewhere. With Bitcoin, it would be as if you got a piece of paper that just said a dollar eighty-three on it. You got the total change back all in one chunk, and it has to be spent all in one chunk. You can't cut the dollar eighty-three bill in half any more than you can cut a one dollar bill in half. That means transactions have to be constructed from whatever Bitcoin UTXOs you happen to have lying around. So if you need 20 Bitcoin and you happen to have 20 Bitcoin, great. If you have 18 Bitcoin and two Bitcoin, you put those two together to get 20. Or you might have to put five different Bitcoin amounts together to get 20. That has to be constructed from the UTXOs in your wallet. And remember that each one has to be spent all at once. So if you want 20 Bitcoin and you have two UTXOs, let's say 10 Bitcoin and 10.5 Bitcoin, 
those have to go together into 20.5 Bitcoin. So there's no way for you to isolate that 0.5 and leave that in your wallet. The 20 Bitcoin will be sent somewhere and the 0.5 will need to be sent as change to an address you control. Otherwise, it's a tip to the miners, as we discussed earlier. And also, as we discussed earlier, most of this is handled by the wallet software in the current age. But it's worth keeping in mind, th these subtleties are worth keeping in mind because it actually does have some interesting implications. One of those implications is dust, which you may have heard of. Dust is leftover amounts of Bitcoin transactions, which are simply not worth the effort of getting out of the wallets. An analogy I sometimes use to explain this is it would be as if the change from a real world transaction went into a little manila envelope and it required a small amount, such as five cents, to open the envelope up. Now in the normal course of operations, that's not such a big deal. But what if somehow you end up with only three cents in a manila envelope? In that case, it's not worth the five cents to get it open. It just sits there forever until hopefully the money appreciates and outstrips the fees fast enough to be worth getting out. Depending on the size of the dust and the price of Bitcoin, this may never happen. It's possible for there to simply be a vanishingly small amount of Bitcoin somewhere that is not accessible. Though wallet software tries to avoid creating dust, there's actually rather a lot of it on the blockchain. And another thing worth keeping in mind is that the Bitcoin blockchain has no idea what your balance is. The balance you see in a wallet or wherever else in a, in a demonstration video, it's an abstraction. It's tabulated by the software that you're using. Ethereum does know what your balance is. Remember, it works on the account model. It maintains a global state across the network and works on an account-based model, which Bitcoin does not. So when we look at this transaction in a block explorer, or as you're just listening to me describe it at home, it says there's a balance of 206 million. That's the one I'm looking at. The block explorer has to figure that out by looking at all the UTXOs that are tied to this address and calculating that value. This is done for you as part of the interface. But the blockchain itself does not know any of that. All it knows is who owns a given UTXO. It has no concept of value, no concept of balance, none of those things. With all of that background in place, we can now look at this high-level definition from, from Andreas Antonopoulos and understand it pretty well. A transaction consumes previously recorded unspent transaction outputs while creating new transaction outputs. And essentially, this is just how the Bitcoin blockchain works. It's these UTXOs ping-ponging around the network from one entity to another. Now, it's important to note that outputs have two parts. There's the actual Bitcoin that's sent, and there's a little cryptographic puzzle that specifies what's required to spend it. When I'm looking at the wallet, uh, like uh, one of my wallets, I don't know anything about this puzzle. If I send Bitcoin to Nick, all I see is I sent Bitcoin to Nick. That's it. But how is it that when he goes to spend the Bitcoin I sent him, the network can trust that he actually owns it? How do we know he didn't just steal that? With money in your bank account, there's a very complex labyrinthine system for keeping track of transactions and settling books. And all of that goes through trusted third parties. With Bitcoin, how do we verify ownership? Well, the details can get a little involved, and I don't understand many of them myself, but I'm going to give you what I do understand and hope that it will help you form a more complete picture of this process. When I sent Bitcoin to Nick, it created the UTXO, one part of which is called a locking script. And the locking script specifies the conditions required to prove ownership of the UTXO, and therefore to spend it. Now, as an interesting aside, 
The locking script is also called a witness script. If you've heard the term segwit, that stands for segregated witness, and it refers to how these locking scripts are handled. We're not going to get into that too much today. Now, in almost all cases, the locking script just tethers the UTXO to a certain address. And basically all it says is this UTXO belongs to the person who holds the private key that was used to generate this address. Now, what does that mean? You've probably seen Bitcoin addresses. I alluded to a blockchain uh, block explorer earlier. It's not hard to Google that term Bitcoin address and you can see an example of one. So what does it mean for a UTXO to be tethered to the address, uh, to the private key that generated an address? How, how does that work? So we'll need to go on a bit of a tangent here and talk about addresses. So Bitcoin addresses are not generated completely randomly. They come indirectly from the user's private key. So a private key is used to generate a public key. And that public key is then processed in a few ways to produce the address. The processing is not really relevant to this high level overview, but you have the private key and you've probably heard that whoever has the private key owns the Bitcoin. That's absolutely true. So Bitcoin is tethered to a particular private key. The private key exists in my head or it's written down on a piece of paper somewhere. And as long as a person doesn't have it, there's absolutely nothing they can do to steal the Bitcoin. The second that they do have it, if they find the private key, if I don't have good operational security and I left the the private key written down somewhere. The second they have it, it's as good as them having cash in my wallet. They, the, the Bitcoin belongs to whoever has the private key. Okay. So just to reiterate that private key is very important. It's used to generate the public key. You don't see the public key generally, but the public key is processed to produce the address. And that is what you see. That's what you see. If you open up a wallet application, that's what you see. If you're looking at a block explorer. Okay. And the UTXO has a locking script, which tethers the Bitcoin to that address. And that address came from the private key. It would kind of be like locking money in a safe, but instead of just using any passcode, we use a passcode that was generated cryptographically from some piece of private information. So imagine that when I sent Nick five Bitcoin, I locked the safe with a code that was generated from his social security number. What happens when we want to spend a UTXO? When we create a UTXO, we, we create a locking script that specifies what's required to spend it. And then when we get ready to spend it, we have to produce an unlocking script, which satisfies the conditions of the locking script. Okay, so the locking script locks, it locks a UTXO to an address, and an unlocking script unlocks and, and frees you to spend that UTXO. Generally speaking, in, in the overwhelming majority of transactions, Producing the unlocking script just involves producing a digital signature with your private key. So there's a lot of terms flying around, but the basic picture is not really that complicated. So in the creation of a UTXO, you get a locking script that locks it to an address. That address came from the private key. And the locking script usually says you've got to produce a cryptographically verifiable private uh, uh, digital signature with the private key in order to prove that you have the private key that was used to generate at this address. And if you do that, that's equivalent to producing the, uh, the, the combination that opens a lock, right? Then the lock opens and you can do whatever it is you want to do. So let's take a step back and see what we have. This system would be like having a magical check from the bank of Gringotts and Harry Potter that somehow knows whether or not a signature is authentic. So I could write a million dollar check to a colleague and leave it on the side of the road and know that no one can use that money 
unless they actually are that person and they, and they actually signed the check. So even if a criminal has been practicing this colleague's signature for years, the, the check sort of magically knows that it's forgery. That would mean I have a mechanism for sending money to people, knowing that it will only be used by those people with no possibility of the money being intercepted or stolen. What's more, no one can stop that transfer. This isn't a check I send in the mail. Once the money is transferred, there's no way of stopping the other person from receiving it. Without knowing anything else about the blockchain, doesn't that seem like the kind of technology that, that could change the world? And there would be numerous use cases for it, say for funding rebel groups who are fighting against a despotic government or sending money overseas without intermediaries to worry about. Okay, we can now turn to blocks, which will be relatively straightforward as we've laid a lot of the groundwork in our discussion of transactions. Blocks just are clusters of transactions. As far as I know, the transactions don't actually have to be related to each other. A block could be a bunch of unrelated transactions, or it could be 10 related transactions in a row. It just kind of depends on which ones make it into the, the queue first and what the associated mining fees with them are. I haven't seen any indication that there's really much of a system in how the network chooses a transaction to include in a block, other than that transactions with higher fees are prioritized above ones with lower fees. Mining nodes, which are just special kinds of nodes on the Bitcoin network, will gather these transactions together, form them into a block, and then mine them, which is putting a block on the blockchain and thereby making it part of the distributed ledger. We're going to talk more about mining in just a little bit, but let's focus on validation. Transactions are validated in a two-step process. Step one is verification, which is when nodes in the network check a transaction against a long list of criteria to ensure that everything is in order. Step two is confirmation, which is mining a block containing the transaction. Let's talk a little bit more about verification. Remember that Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer -peer network. When I perform a transaction, I tell my friends on the network about it, and they verify it by checking it against a long list of criteria, which it has to meet. There's something like 15 or so checks that need to be performed. Some of them are pretty complicated and have to do with the size of the transaction and how big a block can be. And some of them are relatively straightforward and include checking that outputs aren't bigger than inputs and that the inputs haven't already been spent anywhere else. So once I make a transaction, I tell my peers on the network about it, and they, they verify it by checking it against this criteria. And then once it's verified, transactions are added to the MEM pool. It's M-E-M-P-O-O-L. MEM pool stands for memory pool, and it's just a set of transactions the network knows about, but which aren't actually in a block yet. Miners will begin pooling transactions from the MEM pool and forming them into blocks. They do this on an ongoing basis, so this, this is happening continuously. Now, blocks consist of two parts, the transactions and the header. We've already talked about the transactions. They form those into blocks, and then a header is created after the block is created. The header contains important information that we need to understand. There's a fair bit of metadata in the header, but all of it falls into three big categories. There is the competitiveness data, summary data, uh, summaries of the transactions, and reference data. So let's discuss each of these in more detail. The first category is competitiveness data. This consists of the target, which corresponds to how hard it is to actually mine a block, the timestamp, which is when the block was created, and the nonce, 
which is an integer counter that plays an important role in mining. And we will talk about all of this in more detail. The target is the proof of work algorithms difficulty requirements. So in essence, what this does is specify a certain property that a miner's solution to the mining problem has to have in order to be acceptable to the rest of the network. You can think of this as basically being like a knob you can turn up and down to make it more or less difficult to mine a block. The example that's sometimes used is to compare mining to solving a big Sudoku puzzle. A 3x3 three three Sudoku puzzle is much easier to solve than a 13x13 13 13 or a 19x19 19 19 one. What the blockchain wants is for a block to be mined roughly every 10 minutes, give or take. So the network dials up the target, i.e. increases the size of the Sudoku puzzle, as more computers join the competition to mine blocks. And it dials down the target, i.e. decreases the size of the Sudoku puzzle, as computers leave the competition to mine the blocks. The net effect of these adjustments is to have a new block mined on average once every 10 minutes. Okay, so, so that's the target. The timestamp, as we said, is when the block was created. It's just a stamp specifying the time that the block was created. It's exactly what it sounds like. And the nonce is an integer. It's just a number from zero to however high, which is incremented as we try to find a solution to the mining problem. And we discuss that more in the next section. So that's the first category, which relates to competitiveness data. The second category of data in the block header is summary data. The summary data is composed of a Merkle tree root, and that's M-E-R-K-L-E. It's the name of a researcher who developed this technique, which cryptographically summarizes all the transactions in a block. What creating the Merkle tree root basically amounts to is rolling all those transactions up into a single hash value that summarizes all of them. Hashing is something that's kind of important in the blockchain, so we're gonna spend a moment talking about that. Hashing something, whether it is a single transaction or it's the entire block header, just refers to feeding it into the SHA-256 hashing function. The SHA-256 hashing function is the kind that is used by uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, but there are many other hashing functions that you could also use as well. I don't actually know why this one was chosen, but it is the one that was chosen. All the SHA-256 algorithm does is take a variable length input and produces an output consisting of a long string of letters and numbers. The output of the SHA-256 algorithm has a few important properties. The same input always generates the same output. So if I put in a lowercase a 50 times in a row, I always get the same output string. And changing the input changes the output in ways that cannot be predicted in advance. So the Merkle tree algorithm first hashes transactions then hashes pairs of the hashes, then hashes pairs of those hashes until it has a single hash which uniquely stands for this set of transaction. That's a little difficult to visualize. This is one place where having the slides helps, but it's relatively straightforward if you just take an example. So say you have, you have 10 transactions, and let's just call them you know, transaction one, transaction two, all the way through transaction 10. What the Merkle tree root algorithm would do is take transactions one and two, and roll those up by hashing them with the SHA-256 algorithm and getting a hash of transactions one and two. So call that, uh, call that hash one, two, right? Then it would do that for transactions three and four and it would create hash three, four. Then it would do that for transactions five and six, seven and eight, nine and 10. So you've got hash one, two, hash three, four, all the way through hash nine, 10. 
then it would do that again for these hashes. It would take hash one, two and hash three, four, and it would hash that together. And so you, you'd get hash one, two, three, four, and then you do that for five, six, seven, eight, and then nine, 10. And so what you get at the end of it, you keep rolling it up two by two until you get a single hash, which stands for all the transactions in that block. It's a cryptographic summary of all those transactions. And finally, the hash will always be exactly the same for a given set of transactions. And changing any one transaction by even a small amount will completely change the Merkle tree root. Now that's very important. So let's say I've got those 10 transactions and then I go into transaction five and I increment it by one penny. So it goes from, you know, transferring $6 to transferring $6.0 or Bitcoin, six, six, six Bitcoin to 6.0 Bitcoin, change it by a very small amount. That would mean that the hash for that transaction, uh, transaction six would change, which means the hash for transaction six, seven would change. Um, which means the, the Merkle tree root for all of those transactions would change. And it would be completely different. It's not a small difference in the output. The output will be completely different if you change any one of those transactions. Okay, so we've talked about competitiveness data. Now we've talked about the summary data. The third category in the header is reference data, which is a pointer to the previous block's hash. Now, where does that come from? Well, the last thing to be hashed after you've created the block and you've created the header is the entire header. The timestamp, nonce, Merkle tree root, all of that as an entire data structure is fed into the SHA-256 algorithm and you get a, a hash output from that. Okay. So to recap what we've covered so far, and I know it's been a lot of, a lot of territory, some miner wanting to get the Bitcoin reward pulls verified transactions from the mempool piles them up into a container, which is the block, and makes a header for it. The header has the timestamp, the nonce, the Merkle tree root, a reference to the previous block's hash, and everything else discussed so far. Remember those three categories of data in the header. There's the competitiveness data, the summary data, and the reference data to the previous block's hash. And then a hash is created for the whole header during the mining process. And the subsequent block, the block that comes after, will have a reference to that header inside its own header. So block zero wouldn't have that reference because it's the very first block. But once you created the header for block zero, you would create a hash for it by feeding the header into the SHA-256 hashing function. Block, uh, the next block, block one, has a space in its header which contains a, contains the, header from the previous blocks hash. So whatever that hash is, that goes into block one. Block two, same thing. You build the block, you build the header. It has a reference to the header, the hash from the header on block one. Block three has got a reference to the hash from the header for block two. Four has got a reference to three's header hash. Five has got a reference to four's header hash and on down the line. This is actually where the chain comes from. So the block is made out of transactions they are chained together through these references. Each block has got a reference to the pr previous block's hash. Therefore, it's a chain of blocks or a blockchain. That's where the name comes from. Now let's pause for a moment and consider what we've covered. We know that hashing a given input always produces the same output. 
And if you change the input, the output changes wildly. And it, by the way, if you don't believe me, just Google SHA-256, SHA-256. They have little web pages where you can put this stuff in. So you just put, put in the word hello and look at the output and then capitalize the letter H and look at the output. It's wildly different. Now we know that all the transactions in a block are cryptographically summarized by a Merkle tree. And we know that a block's header is hashed. Finally, we know that each block has a reference to the previous block's hash. So what happens if I go 5,000 blocks back and I change one transaction to give myself more money? The hash of that transaction changes. That change cascades up through the Merkle tree so that now the Merkle tree root is totally different. The hash for that block header will also be totally different. And the hash for the next 5,000 blocks, each of which contains a reference to the previous block's hash, are all totally different. So it would be immediately obvious that my copy of the blockchain is different from everyone else's copy, and they would reject it. Now, another analogy. This would be like having a magical book from the library at Hogwarts, where everyone who has a copy can see in real time any new entries that are made. And if a person were to go back to page one and make a change, every single person who owns a copy knows that that change has been made and that the record has been compromised. So again, I asked the same question that I asked at the end of the transaction section. If you didn't know anything about the blockchain, you just knew about these books that have this immutable record, doesn't that seem like the kind of thing that might have far-reaching implications? Now, having covered transactions and having covered blocks, we can now turn our attention to how blocks are mined. So what is mining and how does it work? Mining is the process of trying to discover a block header that meets certain criteria. What criteria do these block headers need to have? Well, it's most common to look for a block header with a hash that has a certain number of leading zeros. So miners are trying to find a block header hash which has a certain number of leading zeros in front of it. So, but how do miners do that? When we say they're trying to find, what, what are they trying to do? What does that trying consist of? Well, we've already said that the output from the SHA-256 algorithm is always the same. So shouldn't you always get the exact same hash output for a header? What do we vary inside the block header to get different hash outputs to check against the criteria? So remember, a block is made out of transactions. We pile all those up, then we make a header for that block. That The header contains competitiveness data, it contains summary data, it contains reference data, and they are hashing that header, that data structure. If the SHA-256 algorithm always produces the same output, which I said it did like 20 minutes ago, then how is it that they're trying to find a block header hash that has a certain property? Wouldn't it always be exactly the same? Well, the answer is that we vary the nonce. As mentioned before, the nonce is just an integer that starts at zero and increments by one. So at each iteration, the header with the current nonce, which usually starts at zero, is fed into the SHA-256 algorithm and the mining node will check to see if the hash output has the criteria, the number of leading zeros that it wants. If it does, the search is over. So let's say that you create the block out of the transactions, you create the header with all its metadata, you hash it and it's got eight leading zeros and that's exactly what you're supposed to have. Great, you got it on the first try. Okay, but what if it doesn't? What if it only has five leading zeros and you needed to have eight leading zeros? Then what you do is you bump the nonce up by one. So you go from zero to one and you try again. 
If the block header hash now has eight leading zeros, great. If it doesn't, you bump the nonce up from one to two and you try again and you just keep doing this. You keep incrementing that integer by one every time and then hashing the, the block header in order to try to get a hash that has the number of leading zeros it's supposed to have. The network will periodically recalibrate by changing the number of leading zeros required. More zeros means it's more difficult and fewer zeros means it's less difficult. So remember I said in the section where I was discussing the competitiveness data, the target is like a knob you can turn up or down. So you can turn it up to make the Sudoku puzzle bigger or you can turn it down to make the Sudoku puzzle smaller. Well, now we don't need that metaphor. What we're talking about is adding more or less leading zeros to the block header hash. If we wanna make it more, more difficult, we will turn that up and there will be more leading zeros in front of the block header hash, which means that a miner trying to mine a block will have to search through more nonces. We'll have to keep iterating for more time in order to find a block header hash that has the number of leading zeros the network requires. And if we turn that down and it needs fewer leading zeros, they will not require as much time. They will not have to iterate through as many nonces in order to find a block header hash that has that number of leading zeros. So you can turn it up, you can turn it down, and remember that the point is to have blocks which are mined approximately every 10 minutes. So miners across the network compete to be the first node to discover a solution to the mining problem and add a new block to the distributed ledger. When one wins, their solution is verified. They are awarded some amount of Bitcoin and the search begins anew. This mining process requires computational work. You have to assemble the transactions. You have to make the header. You have to hash it. You have to keep running through nonces until you find one that works. If you find a header that meets the difficulty target, you have proven that you have done this work. So we call this algorithm proof of work. Proof of work means that you have proven that you've done the work required to find the kind of header the blockchain wants and thereby have confirmed the transactions inside the block and added it to the ledger. So we have discussed what transactions are and how they work. We have discussed what blocks are and how they are built up of transactions and how in the course of building a block, you also built a header that contains all this information in it. And now we have discussed mining and we have referenced the proof of work algorithm, which kind of powers Bitcoin. So how do we know that the blockchain is secure? We've alluded to this topic throughout the talk, and this section is mostly just to adumbrate the case for Bitcoin security by gathering together the different threads that we've been discussing. Remember that one part of a UTXO is the locking script, which stipulates that only the actual owner of the UTXO can spend it. To spend a UTXO, you have to prove you are the owner with an unlocking script. And remember that usually produces a digital signature. Anytime a transaction occurs, peers in the network check it for validity against a long list of criteria. Valid transactions are summarized with the Merkle tree root and can't be changed without changing all of those hashes and therefore lighting up like a Christmas tree. Each block contains a header with a reference to the previous header's hash. And if you change any part of the record, all those hashes change, and it's immediately obvious that malfeasance has occurred somewhere on the chain. This is pretty secure, I think. So having discussed transactions, blocks, mining, and security, let's finally turn our attention 
to how people are using the blockchain. The blockchain has certain primitive properties which make it well suited to different use cases. I'm not going to go through all of these. You can find a pretty good breakdown of this in Andreas Antonopoulos' book, Mastering Bitcoin, but I'm going to outline a few of these. For, for example, there's no double spending on the Bitcoin blockchain. Part of creating a UTXO is tethering it to an address in a way that the whole network can check. So there's just no way to spend it more than once. If you try, it, it won't work. The, the network will reject it because you don't have the right private key to unlock it. Immutability. The transactions and the record of them can't be changed without a stupendous expenditure of energy. There's also neutrality. The blockchain doesn't know or care who you are or what you're doing with the Bitcoin. There's integrity. Once a transaction is signed, it can't be modified without invalidating it. I can't sneakily go in there and alter the ledger. That will change all the hashes and it simply will not work. Now, this, this section has to be short because we are still in the early days of the blockchain, but I think there's enough data for us to note certain use cases. Currency is the obvious one. Bitcoin is an algorithmically determined deflationary currency, which no one can hack, distort, or inflate away. That in and of itself is an enormous revolution in monetary economics, and I think it will ultimately have far-reaching implications. There's also decentralized finance, payments, remittances, borrowing and lending services, which are unstoppable and irreversible. Now, of course, this carries a certain danger to it. If you screw up a transaction, such as by sending it to an address that doesn't exist, it's gone forever, and then there's no appeal process, there's no one to go to to talk about it. But it also means I can, for example, provide loans to entrepreneurs in the developing world who therefore don't need to go through layers and layers of corruption and bureaucracy to start their business. Now, this isn't to say that Bitcoin is magical. It's always possible to make life difficult for blockchain users at the point of an exchange or a bank. You can stop a person turning their Bitcoin into a local currency, but you can't actually stop the transfer of ownership. Now, finally, there's tracking and transferring ownership of off-chain assets. One of the things I like to do when I'm trying to get a handle on the future of new technology is to look at the things people are already trying to hack it into doing. An example of this on the Bitcoin blockchain are so-called colored coins. Colored coins are basically just tiny amounts of Bitcoin with metadata that tie them to off-chain assets. Say I own a car. I could take a small amount of Bitcoin with metadata that points to the deed of the car, allowing me to track ownership of this car by sending that little amount of Bitcoin around. In this case, the Bitcoin is a token of ownership. It's not being used as a currency. Now, this suggests to me that tracking assets and maybe tracking important documents like birth certificates or citizenship papers is a pretty natural use case of the blockchain because people are already trying to duct tape the system into doing that. Now, sometimes people aren't particularly impressed with this set of applications, and I think that stems largely from the fact that we have it pretty good in the Western world. Not long ago, we interviewed Peter McCormack, uh, host, who hosts What Bitcoin Did, the largest Bitcoin podcast in the world. When I asked him about potential use cases for Bitcoin, he spent a lot of time talking about remittances. A remittance is just when somebody in one country, usually a developed country like the United States, sends money to someone in another country, usually a developing country like El Salvador, India, or Pakistan. It's not unheard of for a person in the United States to be supporting an extended family of 30 or 40 people in their home country, with the remittances being all that stands between that family and starvation. With Bitcoin uh, transfers, with Bitcoin transfers, this process is far less painful 
than it is when done through Western Union or a similar sort of service. Transfers are usually instantaneous and have much smaller associated fees. More broadly, I think when you step back and look at how important money is, especially in places where the currency is less stable and the ruling regime is more onerous and overbearing, you see that there are a lot of use cases to this technology. Money is a crucial load-bearing pillar of civilization. It plays an important role in how the division of labor works, how storing value works, how saving and investments work. Bitcoin is the first cryptographically secure, fully decentralized monetary system in the history of the world, and I think it's going to be transformative. I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of the Bitcoin blockchain and how it works. If you did, please check out the podcast at futuratipodcast.com on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you'll tune in next time. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.